The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Welcome to September 2022. Summer is passing by fast. If you've listened to this podcast before, you will know that I enjoy hiking. Nothing major, but just getting outside for some exercise. I recently hiked the Golden Ear Summit Trail. If you are from the Lower Mainland or Fraser Valley of British Columbia, I'm sure some of you have done this before. It's 12K up to the summit and 12K back. The first 8K is pretty easy, but the last four was quite the challenge for me. It involves some very steep and sketchy sections. There are some spots where you use a rope to help you up and down, and some scrambling where you need to use your hands and feet to traverse some rock and root sections. Good thing I had another avid hiker with me to show me the way. The journey was well worth the effort. The 360 degree view from the top was epic. I highly recommend it if you are into this type of exercise. Now on with the episode. I'm again going to tackle another listener's question. It concerns a search. Here's the question with a few facts to set the stage. A wife observes child pornography on her husband's cell phone, which is password protected. The wife does not know the password, but figures it out. She sends screenshots of the child porn images to her phone and prints them off without the husband's knowledge. She attends the police department and gives these images to a patrol officer. Here's the question. Is a search warrant required for the photographs as the husband has a reasonable expectation of privacy to the contents of his cell phone? Does this change if the husband gives his wife the password at some point knowing that she can access his cell phone? but he still has no knowledge of her actions on this date. Believe it or not, this scenario is similar to one the Alberta Court of Appeal has already addressed. So we will look at that case and then come back to our listener's question. The Alberta case is cited as R.V. King 2021 ABCA 271. The accused wife in that case, Miss Lou, was suspicious that King, her husband, was cheating on her. King had a number of electronic devices such as a mobile telephone, computers, and tablets. These devices were protected by a password, which Miss Lou did not know. One day, Miss Lou saw King enter his password into his cell phone and she surreptitiously memorized it. Then, when he left his cell phone unattended, she accessed it to look for evidence of marital infidelity. And she did not have King's permission to do this. On King's cell phone, Miss Lou discovered what she thought was child pornography. She also accessed his computer and an electronic tablet when he left them open and unattended, again finding child pornography. Unbeknownst to King and without his permission, Miss Lou used her own mobile phone and photographed some of the files and thumbnail images displayed on the screens of King's electronic devices and transferred these photos onto a USB flash drive belonging to her. She took this USB flash drive to her divorce lawyer, who in turn persuaded her to take it to the police. Miss Lou did attend the police station. She told a police officer that she thought her husband was in possession of child pornography and handed the USB flash drive over. 
The officer took a quick look to see what was on the USB and then consulted with a detective who investigated child pornography cases. The police subsequently examined the contents of the USB in more detail without a warrant and, using what they saw on the USB flash drive, in combination with the information provided by Miss Liu, obtained two search warrants. One warrant to search King's house and seize and search electronic devices found inside it, and a second warrant to search King's truck and seize and search electronic devices found inside it. The execution of these two warrants resulted in the seizure of 34 electronic devices, seven of which contained child pornography images and videos. King was charged with possessing and accessing child pornography. When this went to trial in Alberta Provincial Court, one of the questions the judge needed to answer was whether the charter was breached when the police viewed, without prior judicial authorization, meaning without a warrant, the photographs taken by Miss Liu that were stored on the USB flash drive that she gave to the police. The judge recognized that Miss Liu was not acting as a state agent when she searched King's electronic devices, took photographs of their screens, transferred those photographs to a USB flash drive, and then gave them to the police. The judge nevertheless concluded that King did have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the contents of his electronic devices, which was highly personal to him and thus triggered Section 8 Charter search and seizure protection. As a result, the judge ruled that police committed an unreasonable search by viewing the USB's contents without a warrant. In the judge's view, Miss Liu could not waive King's charter rights nor provide consent to view the contents of his personal files. When the contents of the USB flash drive were excised from the ITOs for the warrants to search King's house and truck, there was insufficient evidence remaining to support the warrants. The warrants were therefore invalid and the searches flowing from them were unreasonable. But the judge did not exclude all of the evidence under Section 24.2 of the Charter. He only excluded the evidence from the USB flash drive. But the evidence seized from the electronic devices taken from King's residence and truck was admitted. King was convicted of possessing child pornography. King then appealed his conviction to the Alberta Court of Appeal, arguing that all of the evidence ought to have been excluded as a result of the Section 8 charter breaches, including the evidence found in his electronic devices seized from his house and truck. Ironically, King's appeal provided the Crown with another opportunity to argue there was no Section 8 breach at all, and therefore no reason to exclude any of the evidence. The first question for the Court of Appeal to answer was whether there was a search, at least a charter search, when King's wife, Miss Liu, unlocked his electronic devices without his permission, took photographs of the child pornography she found, and turned them over to the police on the USB flash drive. The Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary defines a search as to look into or over carefully or thoroughly in an effort to find or discover something, or to look through or explore by inspecting possible places of concealment or investigating suspicious circumstances. But a search within the meaning of the charter is something different. Quite simply, a charter search involves a state examination that intrudes upon an individual's reasonable expectation of privacy. The unanimous three-member panel of the Alberta Court of Appeal found there was no search by Miss Liu when she looked at the contents of the USB. Her actions did not amount to state action, but rather were those of a private citizen. Remember, the Charter protects people from state action, not from private actors unless, of course, those private actors are acting on behalf or the behest of the state, such as the police. I will throw out a hypothetical to make this point. Suppose five masked men kick in the door to a house, look around inside, and remove a stash of fentanyl they find hidden under a bed. If these five masked men are gangbangers doing a drug rip, then the charter does not apply. If these five masked men are members of an emergency response team serving a search warrant, the charter does apply. 
So even though the actions of these two sets of actors are apparently identical, kicking in a door to a residential premises and taking drugs found inside, the charter is only engaged if the men are state actors. Civil or private activity, independent of the state, does not give rise to a charter breach. Section 32 of the charter states as much. It says the charter applies to Parliament and the Government of Canada and the legislature and governments of a province. It says nothing about private actors or the actions of mere citizens. This tells us that the charter is not intended to govern relations between private actors, but protects people from the government or state, which we know includes the police. Of course, we also know that people can become a state agent, as it's being called, when the police develop a relationship with a private actor such that what the private actor did would not have occurred but for the intervention of the state or its agents. In the King case, the police did not direct Miss Lou to do what she did. She did it all on her own. She was not part of government. She was not performing a specific government function. Nor could she be considered a state agent. Miss Lou started an investigation on her own initiative without any instructions or directions from the police. Here is how the Court of Appeal framed it. Quote, Some may view Miss Lou's conduct in accessing the accused's electronic devices as being unethical or an invasion of privacy, but her conduct did not engage his charter rights. She was not a state agent. She was legally entitled to inform the police of her discovery of contraband. The police can presumptively look at most evidence provided to them without breaching Section 8. End quote. Now what about the police action of looking at the contents of the flash drive? This was not a search for charter purposes either. The police did not take or search anything that belonged to King. His wife told police about what she had observed and provided her own copy of what she had seen on a USB flash drive that she owned. Although King did have an expectation of privacy in his electronic devices, the police never intruded into these devices or his privacy. It was Miss Lou who acted on her own. Regardless of how she obtained the photos, her private activities would not be a state charter breach. Again, quoting what the Court of Appeals said is helpful to understand this. Here's what it said. The reason that the police viewed the USB flash drive was to confirm that it contained child pornography as reported by Miss Lou. It is acknowledged that the accused had an expectation of privacy in the contents of his laptop. The state, however, never intruded into his laptop or his privacy. Miss Lou looked at the contents of the laptop and captured some of its contents, but she was not a state agent. The mere fact that the accused had an expectation of privacy does not engage Section 8, and the absence of state action at that stage is dispositive. If the police had done what Miss Lou did, there would have been a Section 8 breach. But they did no more than receive a report from a citizen who said she had found evidence of a crime. Their viewing of her USB flash drive may have been state action, but receiving reports of a crime does not engage the accused Section 8 rights. End quote. To this, the Court of Appeal added, again I quote, The requirement that there be state action for a charter breach is effectively negated if private action becomes state action the minute the private citizen interacts with the police. Further, the police are not required to conduct a voir dire at the front counter of the police station to look into the source of the citizen's information before the police even look at what the citizen has brought in. If, as in this case, the police wish to follow up on that information, it may be that they will have to obtain a warrant. But merely looking at Miss Lou's USB flash drive was not a search involving the accused, let alone a search involving state action. In this case, the applications for the search warrants depended not only on what the police saw on the USB flash drive, but also on what Miss Lou had told them she had seen. 
It is true that Miss Lou had obtained access to the accused's mobile telephone through seeing the accused entering his password and surreptitiously memorizing it, but that was not the case with all of the devices. On other occasions, the accused left his electronic devices open and unattended, and Miss Lou was able to view the contents. In neither case does Miss Lou reporting what she saw to the police amount to a search being conducted by state action. When citizens like Miss Lou attend at the police station and provide evidence of what they have reason to believe was a crime, the police do not engage in an unreasonable, warrantless search by examining the evidence provided. The alleged state action took place when the police looked at what they had brought to them. However, examining images whose mere existence may be a crime, or at the very least evidence of a crime, is what police do. Examining such evidence does not turn Miss Lou's private action into state action or turn a normal police investigation into a search. Examining such information is clearly authorized by law as the investigation of possible crimes is one of the core duties of the police service. Indeed, the police can hardly refuse to look at what the member of the public has brought in and still discharge their duty to enforce the law. A member of the public who reports evidence of a crime is not purporting to waive anybody's constitutional rights or purporting to provide anybody else's consent, but is merely reporting a suspected crime. The examination of the USB flash drive by the police was not an examination of anything or place that belonged to or that was under the control of the accused. The police were not required to inquire into how the accused wife obtained the images, because regardless of how she obtained them, her private activities would not be a state charter breach. End quote. In the King case, the police were in lawful possession of the USB drive. The drive belonged to Miss Lou and she had brought it into the police station and voluntarily gave it to the police. Thus, the police examination of the USB's contents was not obtained through an unreasonable warrantless search. Consequently, the information about what was found on the USB drive should not have been excised from the search warrants. Contrary to the conclusion of the trial judge, the warrants were valid and there was no basis to exclude the evidence under Section 24-2. King's appeal was dismissed and his conviction was upheld. Now, of course, it would be different if Miss Lou had brought King's electronic devices into the police and told police they could look at them. Or, had Miss Lou come to the police station before she accessed her husband's electronic devices and was instructed by police to surreptitiously obtain her husband's password, search the phone, take photos of its contents, and bring those photos into the police, this would have been a different story. This would make her an agent of the state, but that is not what happened here. Instead, at the point when Miss Lou involved the police, they did get warrants to search King's electronic devices. The examination of the USB flash drive by the police was not an examination of anything or place that belonged to or that was under the control of King. Now, of course, the King case is from Alberta, so it's only binding in that province, but it certainly provides some insight into how judges interpret the charter, which can assist the police all across the country. I would like to think that charter-compliant police conduct would be the same no matter where you are in Canada, whether Alberta or Ontario. But as we have seen, judges do disagree and do get it wrong. But if for some reason another judge in another province was to disagree with the Alberta Court of Appeals reasoning, the fact you were aware of this case and did your best to comply with the charter should at least demonstrate you were acting in good faith. This in turn could militate the seriousness of any charter infringing conduct in the Section 24-2 admissibility analysis. Now back to the listener's question. Based on the King case, which I would encourage all of you to read for yourself along with the lower provincial court ruling as it will help provide more context, no warrant would be required to look at the pictures brought into the police station by the wife, assuming she acted on her own. A link to these cases is provided in the episode notes. I can't see a meaningful difference in viewing the screenshots on the wife's phone that she took, as suggested by our listener, 
as being different from her taking those same photos and downloading them to a USB flash drive and providing the flash drive to the police. Provided the wife's cell phone isn't some sort of shared device where the husband would retain a privacy interest in the device itself, independent of the wife, I don't think much would change in the analysis. But then you need to ask yourself, what am I going to do now? Are you going to use the information provided by the wife, including the photographs of alleged child pornography, to obtain a search warrant to search the husband's cell phone or other electronic devices? Remember, in the King case, the police looked at the evidence provided by the wife to obtain a search warrant. The contents of the USB had not been tendered as evidence. It was excluded by the judge. You would definitely want to consider searching the husband's actual devices. After all, you are going to have to prove possession of or access to child pornography. It is undisputed that knowledge and control are essential elements to proving possession. The elements of accessing child pornography are knowingly causing child pornography to be viewed by or transmitted to oneself. Simply relying on a witness's evidence that they obtained the photographs from their husband's phone to prove possession may have its challenges, as photographs of the screen may not be the best evidence. You may want to get additional evidence from your suspect's actual phone. Rather than having only photographic representations of an accused display screens, the police might want to navigate the devices, open the files shown, or otherwise interact with the contents. Perhaps a forensic analysis of a suspect's actual phone can provide additional evidence about when the photos were downloaded, where they were downloaded from, where they were stored on the electronic device, and when they were viewed or last opened. This information could be very essential to proving a possession of or access to child pornography charge. If you want to know more about what information can be obtained from a forensic search of an electronic device, speak to your departmental digital forensic expert. So what are some of the nuggets we can learn from this case? Number one, not every form of examination will constitute a search for charter purposes. It is only state examinations that intrude into a person's reasonable expectation of privacy that will amount to a search within the meaning of Section 8 of the Charter. So in the case we just reviewed, the wife was not an agent of the state, therefore, Section 8 was not triggered. Number two, state intrusions into a person's reasonable expectation of privacy are permissible if they are reasonable. And finally, number three, such intrusions into a person's reasonable expectation of privacy, that is to say the police do conduct a search, those searches will be reasonable if they are authorized by a reasonable law and carried out in a reasonable manner. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.